Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, host of Scholarly Communication. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate time to my family, mountain biking, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. At Academic Language Experts, we help academic scholars, researchers, and science professionals with translation, editing, writing, and publication support for their research. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jason Prevost from Brill. Jason is the liaison for publication ethics, the coordinating chair of the publication ethics committee, and the senior act and a senior acquisitions editor responsible for social sciences and international relations portfolio at Brill. Jason's been at Brill since 2014 and is based out of the Boston office. Um, it's really great timing that we're speaking today, um, as my company, Academic Language Experts, and Brill are this week commencing on a partnership to empower authors in the humanities and social sciences to publish their research with confidence. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy day to chat with me. My pleasure, and thank you for having me. Great to be here. Of course. So I'm, I was hoping you can kind of take us back a little bit and um, maybe tell us about two career milestones. And first would be, you know, kind of how you got into academic publishing uh, in general. What drew you to it? Was it uh, was that always your dream um, from when you were a little kid, or kind of did you fall into that? Um, and then specifically, once you were in the world of academic publishing, how in the world did you get stuck with the ethics portfolio and how did that come about? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, uh, many moons ago, you know, having finished graduate school uh, in, uh, at the University of Colorado at Boulder uh, and having you know, grown up for the most part in New England and uh, always having been a, a devotee of the written word, uh, it made sense to move back home, um, especially to such a hub of uh, an active hub of, of, of the publishing industry, Boston. Um, and so I started off, um, uh, freelancing, you know, copy editing, uh, providing some translation services really from the ground up, uh, real red pen, uh, type stuff, learning the, the, the actual, the, the nuts and bolts of publishing really from the ground up. And, um, and then I, that segued into a more professional capacity, um, in textbook publishing, actually. Uh, with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and then Pearson. And then um, I moved uh, through, a, I, I spent some time actually doing content marketing, the editorial side, 
And then I moved uh, to the American Meteorological Society, which was my first um, position in academic publishing. And there I was responsible with a few other uh, colleagues for coordinating the peer review process for the AMS's journals. And so that that was the beginning of my career in academic publishing. And then um, and then when it comes to ethics, so at, even at AMS, there was clear immersion in the publication ethics side of things, uh, stewarding the peer review, of course. Um, so then, uh, you know, starting to work at Brill in 2014, I started with Brill um, to spearhead an, a publication initiative, a new publication type called Brill Research Perspective. Um, and then uh, having uh, succeeded in launching that at Brill across uh, our various subject areas, I was then tasked with um, uh, assuming responsibility for the social sciences uh, and American studies as a priority growth area. Uh, and then, you know, so uh, in my in my roles at Brill, there, there's been a, a clear element of you know launching initiatives, spearheading um, various uh, undertakings, and so and even in the growth area of social sciences, where we've uh, really captured some great visibility and improved our, our profile in the uh, publishing landscape. So all of that, I think, those were considerations that factored into our CPO, Yasmin Langa, uh, reaching out to me <clears throat> in uh, early 2019 uh, to uh, overhaul our publication ethics um, from scratch. Uh, at that time, we had a very, um, very limited statement just a word document uh, providing very rudimentary guidance uh, and so we needed something um, with greater depth uh, a more refined and clear and transparent uh, policy and procedure <clears throat> for publication ethics cases so i think that those considerations factored in um, so i took that on and uh, one of the first uh, and it was in response actually to a spate of problems that came to light publication ethics uh, violations in late 2018, and really uh, threw into relief how you know how urgent it was that we uh, improve our policy and procedure. And so, um, you know, it's been a remarkable journey, uh, publication ethics at Brill, in the sense of uh, the knowledge and experience I've gained and we've collectively gained, um, and how successfully we've uh, established our policy and streamlined procedure for retractions and core agenda and errata and such. Um, and that uh, that journey started with my attendance at the at Cope's North American Seminar in Philadelphia in May 2019, uh, where I also had the pleasure to meet Michael Doherty of Ohio Dominican University, a professor of philosophy, who also happens to uh, now be a, a member of our publication ethics committee. Um, and so, yeah, so we founded the committee, 21 members, 13 Brill staff, including the CPO, Yasmin Longa. Uh, publishing unit directors uh, representing all of the publishing units and acquisitions editors from a, a variety of, of subject areas, as well as eight external academics of uh, varying degrees of seniority, mostly mid to uh, late career. So that's yeah, wow, that's that's fascinating. I don't know what you're you know how much you're allowed to say, but can you give us a specific instance, either that in, in Brill or or outside of Brill, that you felt like maybe is a good example, so people can get a real idea and understanding of like what what are we talking about when we're talking about ethical violations? Are these you know are these paper mill papers? Are these people who are you know stealing from other researchers? What's what exactly are we alluding to here? Right. Well, 
uh, publication ethics violations, there's a whole taxonomy, um, numerous um, flavors, so to speak. Um, and uh, you know, what I see most of is uh, plagiarism or self-plagiarism, which I can explain often, uh, well, not often, sometimes of a, a serious serial nature. Um, we've seen quite a bit of that. Um, we're seeing less and less, though, and I think it's uh, partly uh, owing to our um, improved policy and procedure, but also problems related to provenance of artifacts, for example, omissions or inaccuracies about the provenance, sometimes uh, willful distortions. Um, we've also dealt with uh, segmented or uh, also known as salami publication, uh, cutting up you know, one uh, study or data set from a single study into various publications and you know, misrepresenting. Uh, that as, as if it were coming from numerous studies, uh, as well as dealing with fabrications and falsifications. Um, so it, it breaches of care, uh, duty of care, for example. So um, uh, violations of how research subjects, human or animal, uh, were uh, dealt with uh, and uh, all manner of violations, really. So it's, yeah, it's a complex environment. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of like moving parts and you have to kind of keep track of. I'm curious, you know, uh, th this might be a difficult question to answer, but, you know, what do you find that most of the issues that you're dealing with are actually what you would call, you know, some sort of fraud where the author is aware? Or do you think it's more a general sort of ignorance about what is and is not acceptable behavior and practice in um, academic research, and it's more of an educational, and I assume that the reaction or the response to that needs to be a little bit different than if you think someone is simply, you know, uh, uh, trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Mm -hmm. Well, we've had both. Uh, we've had instances of innocent um, omissions, failure to cite, uh, maybe in the um, in the uh, the pressure to publish and strict uh, deadlines and just the the, the fast pace of the publication process. There have been some instances where something was caught by peer reviewers, and, and, and that's a little different. If something is caught and it appears innocent enough, then we allow the author pre, you know, pre-publication to correct it. Of course, if it doesn't have any appearance of, of, uh, of woeful violation. Um, but we've also, and, and these do happen, or even post-publication, um, you know, where an author contacts us and um, voluntarily and says, oh my gosh, I, I noticed I failed to cite uh, in these two instances. Uh, can I please correct it? And of course, we're accommodating um, and we don't uh, think the worst in those situations, but we have also had uh, numerous um, scenarios of uh, willful, uh, unsighted, un you know, unattributed borrowing, um, sometimes of a serial nature across numerous publications at Brill and other publishers. Uh, and you can, I can I just stop sure. you? you? You use the term um, um, a wi uh, willful uh, what, borrowing. What's the what's the exact term? Well, unattributed borrowing or unattributed borrowing. Is, that a, is that a nice way to say plagiarism? I just want to make sure that our, our audience understands what we're aiming at here. It is. It is. Okay, got it. All right, continue. My apologies. That's a, that's a, a sanitized. Uh, you yeah. Know, plagiarism yeah. is a very uh, ugly word. Uh, Indeed. Got yeah. it. Okay. So. You know, we've even had a case where the serial plagiarism, and by that I mean numerous publications, a clear pattern of repeated uh, uh, research misbehavior, uh, was accompanied by a misrepresentation of qualifications and experience. So not only 
this serial plagiarism, but also attaching to that a false bio, um, misrepresenting um, affiliations, institutional affiliations. So it really, sometimes there are some really grievous scenarios. Is that part of your responsibility as a publisher, you think, to start looking in, digging into the background and making sure the person is who they say they are or has the credentials? Because I feel like, you know, there's, there's a, it, 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 that can be hard, you know, you're not, you're not necessarily going to hire a private investigator or do a background search on each and every author. But on the other hand, you know, you obviously want people who, who are who they say they are. Sure. Um, well, I don't, for our, uh, on a day-to-day basis for our acquisitions editors and desk editing staff and our journal, well, publishing partners, whether it's book series editors or journal editors or board members, I don't think it's sustainable to conduct an investigation for each and every author. So there's an element of trust. And there's also, um, I think, a, a valid uh, and healthy assumption that the academic community is self-regulating to a certain degree, you know. Um, and most importantly, peer review uh, factors into that. And the peer review process is indispensable, central to identifying those types of misbehaviors. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned before um, the uh, the salami uh, research where you're, and, and that, I find that really interesting. I'm curious, in my line of work, what I've come across a number of times is especially, um, I would say, sort of more junior scholars who have spent a lot of time and effort into their doctorate. And then they kind of take their doctorate and, and, and mix it up a little bit and try and publish it in, in a few different ways. And on the one hand, you know, let's say it's a doctorate of 250 pages and then they turn it into four or five articles. On the one hand, that makes a lot of sense, right? There's enough material there. On the other hand, I think there are times where it's a bit forced. It feels a bit forced and maybe um, they're trying to squeeze, you know, uh, a few publications and kind of just saying the same things in different ways than they've already said previously. So are there, you know, clear guidelines in terms of, you know, how can a scholar take their doctorate and then republish it in other forms? And if so, kind of what is the what are the borders of that, you know, uh, republication um, and what's appropriate? That's a very good question. So in principle, um, you know, chopping up a, a doctorate, a dissertation or their thesis uh, into multiple publications or even um, revising it to be a monograph, which is also an option, um, is perfectly acceptable. Um but there are some gray areas that you allude to. So, uh, for example, um, uh, getting you know, a number of different articles out of one um, dissertation, perfectly acceptable. However, uh, two factors. Uh, some journals may uh, shy away from that, uh, the publication of material from a, a doctoral work. Um, but that's rare. Most journals are accepting of it provided uh, the material is sufficiently revised. And by that, uh, there's a, the, the, the published product differs substantially from the doctoral work, from dissertation, because it has to be revised for a much broader readership, academic readership, or even general. Um, you know, you're not writing for a PhD committee, of course. Taking out the methodology section, um, not you know removing much of the literary uh, the literature review which is not necessary uh, you know alluding to to some of that maybe in an introduction but um, you know really a dissertation uh, the author is demonstrating his or her authority and, and trying to validate it whereas in a monograph or a published article that authority is assumed and so. The, the references are to enrich the reader's experience and also to provide ad, um, 
adequate citation. So it's a very different product. Um, but back to the question of dividing it up, no problem at all. You know, most institutions publish these um, dissertations in an internal repository. Um, some are online visibly. Um, also not a problem, provided the citation is made to the dissertation, to the doctoral work. So the citation is, is, is paramount, uh, whether it's in a monograph or a uh, published article. Um, and also that gray area. And then now we move into the direction of uh, self-plagiarism uh, and what in segmented or salami publication. And I could see, especially with the pressure to publish, uh, that uh, some junior scholars especially could succumb to uh, uh, the temptation of getting even more out of the dissertation than is appropriate with some overlap. Um, so there are three varieties of self-plagiarism, really. There's the simple recycling of pre-published work. There's duplicate, or aka multiple or redundant publications, sending the same article out to numerous publications at once. And then there's the segmented publication, which gives the false appearance of numerous studies. So anytime, especially a junior scholar wishes to uh, revise a dissertation into a monograph, or to divide it up into several published articles, I would strongly recommend um, seeking the counsel of you know, senior colleagues, senior scholars about the best and most ethical way to approach that and to avoid any um, any temptation to really over profit from that. You know? Right. Yeah. And it sounds what, what what's interesting about what you're saying is that it sounds like not only is, you know, do you avoid the issues with ethics that way you're also it's also best practice in terms of thinking critically about your target audience because if you actually you know are thinking about who's going to be reading this so you have to ask yourself the question well is it justified more than what i've already put out and if it really is a different audience and you really have different points to make so actually go ahead and do that um whereas if you're just kind of trying to recycle it in a new you know and get the same thing published in different words then maybe um that's an issue i know that We've got, <laughs> we at times get requests um, as an author services editing company um, to just rewrite certain sections that were flagged in the plagiarism check, you know, and, and oftentimes they say, but this is my words, you know, it's all plagiarism. I do, I, I have, you know, sort of a little bit of sympathy um, because when it's your own work, um, but it, I think it's really important to understand that the whole point of research is to produce novel ideas and concepts. And if you're, even if you're regurgitating yourself, you're kind of going against that 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 idea that's right and of course they they uh, any author who self um plagiarizes like that without uh attribution to where the original it was originally published does a disservice to themselves because you know actually there's a benefit to be drawn from directing attention to the previously published work and then demonstrating that some novel ideas some additional original material is being built upon previous observations so um you know it's I think that self-citation, uh, it, it's critical for the integrity of the scholarly record, but it's also a service to oneself as well as the broader community. So. Got it. Now, I want to talk about an original authorship for a minute. Um, can you talk to us? I mean, I think it goes without saying um, for most of our listeners that, you know, we want to, we're going to be the authors of our own papers, but even that is not necessarily, uh, um, you know, uh, fully across the board. I know that, you know, there's a whole uh, industry of science writers um, who help scientists with, you know, writing their papers. I think, you know, we, we, we come across, an, uh, you know, a decent number of 
you know, doctors who are, you know, maybe surgeons in hospitals that they've got all this great data and they want to get it out there. And they're just like, they, A, don't have time and B, don't have, um, you know, the, they just don't have the training maybe to write a, a formal paper. So do you think that there are, is it sort of across the board that, 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 you know, having a ghostwriter or someone else write for you or with you is problematic and, and, um, are there cases where that's okay? And is do you see a difference maybe between the humanities and social sciences in this in this context, or between I guess humanities, social sciences on the one hand, and maybe some of the STEM or medical uh, fields on the other? Um, well, being fully immersed in, in the humanities and social sciences as I am, um, we don't see much of that activity. Um, I myself, in my experience, haven't ever seen it. Um, I'm not too well equipped. That, that, that I know of, indeed, um, which is an unsettling thought. Um, but uh, I'm not too well acquainted with that industry, if we'll call it that, uh, on the STEM side. Uh, but what I can say is that, strictly speaking, uh, that type of ghostwriting is a, a, a misrepresentation of authorship. And there, there are a few varieties of that. So you have ghostwriting, where it's contributing in part or in whole uh, with the expectation of not being credited, um, and especially... You know, often induced, or there's a financial inducement just as a service. Um, there is, uh, and that kind of dovetails with marketplace authorship, buying or selling authorship of academic manuscripts. Um, uh, and then there's honorary authorship, right? So naming senior uh, or influential members of, say, one's department um, uh, who, you know, who may have helped secure funding. So there's a certain... Um, cronyism there. There's gift authorship. So naming a senior or even a junior colleague as an author with the understanding, explicit or implicit, that the other party will do the same. So a bit of a quid per quo. Um, there is, uh, well, coercive authorship, which uh, um, happily we're seeing much less of as we move forward. But, you know, senior researcher um, imposing upon, a say, a junior researcher to do the, the work. Um, uh, and things like that. So strictly speaking, this type of activity is a publication ethics violation. It's a misrepresentation of authorship. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder have you have you actually come across any of these scenarios in your work on the ethics committee i, I it, you know it sounds to me like i'm these things do happen i mean there's no doubt about that but you know uncovering them is probably quite challenging and difficult you know how do you really know if the senior academic was involved and to what extent they're involved i mean you're not putting video cameras in there in their in their faculty lounge so you know have you come across situations where you've had to deal with these issues um you know and it is i think it this type of violation is the most elusive uh, of course because i think it happens far more frequently than we'd like to to think um just in the normal workplace or not normal but you know the certain work workplace dynamics right uh that we that we're not aware of um i have ex I have had ex some experience with one case similar to this, but it was it involved a PhD candidate 
who did, who wrote substantial portions of um, a couple of chapters, like 50% of each, and was not credited in the published work. And um, this was actually a, a very long, uh, uh, long process uh, to resolve, to resolve it because there was pushback from the senior researchers who were involved, and there was pushback from a series editor, um, and, and th- it was a, it was very, it was almost uh, political uh, in some some respects. Um, but uh, we did stand uh, fast uh, by our principles and our policies, and we did prevail in the end um, on um, everyone involved to um, uh, to correct the record and to put a notice, um, uh, clearly giving credit to the PhD candidate for the work uh, that was done. So that that is one case, uh, yeah, yeah, and and that's probably part of your, you know, I imagine you have a lot of um, parts of this job which can be quite frustrating at times, but I guess you know those little wins probably make it all worth it that you know you've kind of done justice to to the author, and I think that's that's really that's really amazing and and important. Um, it, I, now I'm I'm sort of as I'm hearing you speak, it's really fascinating. Um, aside from the fact that I'm just you know fascinated by ethics dilemmas and questions in general. Um, I imagine that, you know, you've got this quite a large team, it sounds like 21 people on the committee. Um, but are you sitting there sort of hashing out, you know, having these philosophical debates and hashing out policy? Or are there like, uh, you know, more general, um, uh, you know, resources or sources of authority that you refer to or go to? Uh, you mentioned Coke. Uh, maybe you could talk about kind of how you go about even, you know, once you have that that those guidelines in place, I guess, you know, you have to just apply them, which even then can be, you know, not always so simple, but, but how do you go about creating the guidelines in the first place? Or how do you go about, you know, sort of um, altering them or, or dealing with new situations and dynamics? I'm sure, you know, open access has probably, you know, led to certain questions that never came up before. So how do you even come up with policy for that? Well, so in the, in the formative stages, COPE was, um, and continues to be our principal resource. Uh, you know, founded in 1997, COPE was currently chaired by Daniel Culp, um, Senior Director, Editorial Development Journals at the American Chemical Society. So it's a long-standing 25-year anniversary now um, for COPE. Uh, and you know, they they have an abundance of resources, even workflows, uh, for various types of uh, violation scenarios and retractions and recommended best practices. Um, and they're real, they're just a valuable resource for the entire publishing community. It would be editors or publishers or institutes, um, research centers. And so um, in the, as we formulated the policy, uh, I did a lot of research. As I mentioned, I attended the uh, North American seminar in 2019. I, I you know, scoured their editorial workflows and I tried to distill both for my taxonomy of violations as they're listed in the, in the publication ethics document, as well as our basic um, protocol for handling any <clears throat> um, alleged violation, I'll say. Um, uh, so they, they were my starting point. Um, and so as we went through, and, and you know, the, I worked very closely with Yasmin Longer, a CPO, and, uh, and once that was in place, then, you know, we set up the committee and we've also, uh, over the years, established a clear procedure on the operations side to ensure. So I work closely with my colleague, data manager, Marion Yeckel, um, who uh, joined us on the committee to ensure that, you know, once we've deliberated and come to a clear decision consensus on any type of 
uh, allegation of violation, then it's the follow through that really matters most. Because you know, if retractions are agreed on, but if they're poorly uh, processed, uh, if they're posted in such a way that's uh, non-standard or partial or things like that, or if they fall through the cracks or if the metadata is not updated. So a lot of those steps, um, those steps are just as important as the deliberation, uh, if not more so, of course, for the downstream literature. So the way we get to that, um, when a case comes up, um, give you a simple overview, the process is that a typically um, an acquisitions editor or and or a publication uh, publishing director from one of the units will bring it to my attention. We'll discuss it, uh, various aspects. There are some cases that are so um, of such a serious nature that we do involve Yasmin um, uh, in, in the conversation. Uh, typically, and sometimes by email, we'll reach out to one or more, typically three uh, um, committee members for their input, depending on their area of expertise or their prior experience. Um, and then uh, we come to a decision and we move forward, we inform the stakeholders, editors, authors, whoever it may be. Um, now, on the other hand, I the Publication Ethics Committee has two meetings per year that I coordinate. So we have our mid-year meeting and then we have our annual uh, well year in review meeting. And so at the mid-year meeting and throughout every calendar year, as the year goes along, I compile uh, an archive of case studies for each year. And so mid-year, so at these meetings, the general uh, setup is that, you know, I'll provide an overview of developments at Brill. What are we doing now? For example, we're exploring Crossmark right now and, and doing some other things uh, in the CoreEc initiative with... Um, NISO about yeah, the, um, uh, the preserving the scholarly record. Like, how do you get retractions? How do you make people aware that they're potentially citing retracted material? How do you educate authors to flag that when they do? You know, so various things we're looking into, uh, far more refined than what we were doing a few years ago. But in these meetings, I provide an update on developments uh, within Brill. Uh, I highlight some emerging or persistent trends that we discuss more broadly, and then I present an overview of uh, active case studies, uh, some of which do require more vigorous um, discussion. And then, and we do that at both meetings, but then at the end of the year, I um, submit my annual report, Publication Ethics at Will, that goes deeper into some of these explorations uh, and prevents a fuller acquisition. Really interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting you mentioned the retract the issue of retractions. I interviewed um, Ivan Aransky recently from Retraction Watch. Um, and what surprised me, uh, one of the things he said, which really surprised me and kind of made me think was he wasn't as bothered by, or, you know, I don't want to speak in his name, but my impression was that he wasn't necessarily as bothered by the fact that sometimes fraud gets through because there will always be in such a big industry, people who try to cut corners. What bothered him more is the delay of the publishers in retracting and dealing with those issues that came up. Sometimes he said they would ignore it entirely. Sometimes it would take time for them to retract that. Um, so is that something that you, you know, have seen with other publishers? You know, I'm sure you do your best to make sure that Brill, and, but, but maybe, maybe I guess the way I want to frame the question is um, maybe you could share with us some of the challenges on your end when you do identify something you know, how do you actually handle and cope with that so that it is done in a timely way, but but also, you know, the, maybe the, the, the author is, is gets their 
t- chance to to you know give their side and 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 try and work something out. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you, you make a very important observation, and that's one of the most important functions of Cope. Really, is to help the publishing industry community achieve a certain degree of consistency in how they handle these things. And there's a wide it's pretty wildly variable across publishers. Some, and I did in one of my reports, I actually did an overview. Uh, of course, I'm not going to name names, but from small to mid-sized to large publishers, the the differences and even uh, publicly posted uh, publication ethics policy, whether that was even available uh, across different publishers. So a lot of um, variation, inconsistency, and Cope, I know strenuously, uh, continues to work toward improving that, you know, by getting the word out. Um, but uh, to answer your question, so <clears throat> it, when, when, when we're presented with an allegation of an ethics violation, it's first and foremost, we want to hear from all sides and ensure that it's a balanced assessment. Um, and I recently actually had a situation where uh, it was brought to my attention that another publisher's author um, notified that publisher of similarities uh, with that person's work in our published work. Uh, however, so we took a look, uh, the publishing director and other acquisitions editor and myself took a close look, a comparative. We did a line by line comparison of the documents, uh, publications in question. And what emerged, though, was that the similarity of language was due to um, uh, the use of concepts, really. So uh, it was it, it was just uh, the concepts, the jargon specific to that field. And so uh, the expression linguistic innovation, okay? So sometimes when citing, uh, for example, case law, uh, legal concepts, for example, there's no way to change the language without unnecessary and potentially uh, well linguistic variation that could potentially deteriorate, you know, diminish the quality of the work. And linguistic vari- uh, innovation is actually looked upon disprovingly in the academic community. If you have to say something a certain way and it's standard phraseology, then it's best to do so. And that does not constitute unattributed borrowing or plagiarism. And so anyway, in this case, we did a very, uh, very close inspection of the materials in question. and We also consulted the author as well as the editor of the publication and, uh, you know, gave them you know, an audience. And it was compellingly demonstrated and argued that there was no malicious uh, um, uh, plagiarism or other type of, you know, um, uh, questionable borrowing. It was just the fact that the language was necessary as written and it was unavoidable. But that's a, that's a situation where we made a point of speaking with the author in question who is, you know, being accused, working with the editor, getting that person's views and building a case and a response to the other publisher. So it's never knee jerk. Uh, we do take into consideration everyone's viewpoints um, and ensure that we have a balanced um, solution. Yeah. Got it. That makes sense. All right. Um, I want to I want to bring ourselves um, to the end, but there's one question that I have to ask you um, because it's is so intriguing to me, and I didn't know before we got on here that you're a translator. So um, you're gonna have to tell me what language is used to translate. Um, but I'm curious um, because I, I kind of came across I've come across this a few times. I've been asked about this. Um, 
what do you say about translated works? Um, are they kind of duplicate publications or is there no translation without, you know, some sort of interpretation and therefore they become new works? Um, curious what you have to hear about that, but I do want to know what languages you translate because that, that, that fascinates yeah, me. Yeah, well, well, most of the work I did, uh, translation work was French. Uh, that's the focus, but I also did some, so my background is in, well, at the grad level is in uh, classical studies. So, um, uh, a bit of the, uh, of Latin and ancient Greek, uh, mostly French though. Um, so translations, um, and, you know, reused materials as well, but it touches on that, but, um, and I know that you and I discussed reused materials as well, but, um, so for translations, you have two scenarios. You have the licensing you know, and there's the ethics of that, the licensing, the appropriate copyright notice, any credits and acknowledgements, and, you know, making sure that the whole process is above board. But there is something called translation plagiarism that one needs to keep an eye out for. Um, now, a, a, a translation is a translation. There's nothing ethically questionable about it if handled in a standard of a board fashion. But translation plagiarism is a real problem. And it happens uh, quite frequently. Uh, where the um, the uh, the violator uh, assumes that no one will catch on to it because it's coming from a language not as widely read, especially if it's not say a, a continental European language or something. You know, there's this assumption that the risk of being caught is is minimal, and so what they'll do is they'll present it as their own work, uh, but it'll be often verbatim translation. Uh, from the original, uh, or sometimes even worse, actually, and much more difficult to detect is they'll uh, uh, paraphrase the translated material, which then adds a layer of uh, concealment, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that. And then, um, uh, but reuse doesn't really apply to uh, translation work, although. Um, I don't know if you wanted me to comment on that, the reuse of material since we touched well, on Well, yeah, uh, I was kind of curious because that happens with us sometimes where authors will come to us and say, listen, I've published something in German um, and I got a publication out of it in German. Can I come now and translate it into English and, you know, have it count as an independent publication? Um, oh, sure, say, sure. Yeah, no, that's completely acceptable provided, uh, you know, the proper licensing, well, permissions are, are granted. Um and uh, unless the author uh, has retained the English rights, for example, um, then there's no hindrance uh, to that. Um, and rep uh, republishing an article, say, as a chapter in a book, um, again, if it's uh, a translation, standard process, uh, if it's uh, the same material from a previous, um, say, an article being published in a collected volume, um, Verbatim republication, provide the permissions are there, and the citation, the attribution, you know, uh, of the original publication is made. Um, that's more an editorial matter of editorial discretion, whether they want previously published material. If it's going to be built into a broader work, like how much of a book can be previously published work, there's no hard calculus on that. Uh, again, very much an editorial matter. Um, you know, what... Uh, what new value does this publication bring? And also an author, uh, it's in the author's best interest not to just rehash uh, previously published material, of course, always to build on with new insights. So. Got it. 
Okay. Yeah, that, that's that's really helpful because I think that um, you know uh, my advice to authors is always if you're if you're straightforward with all the parties involved and tell them, then you won't you, you won't run into issues. You know, if you tell the place you published in, you tell the place that you're planning on publishing in, and everything is sort of on the table. What the problem is when you started trying to pass things off as if they're you know entirely original when they may you know have already been been written and published in another language. Um, so I just want to you know kind of uh, summarize and 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 you know conclude and ask you you know I could tell you know in speaking to you before and speaking to you throughout this interview that you know I don't know you may, you may this may have been kind of put on your plate um, you know whether you asked for it or not but it sounds like you're really kind of taking a liking to it and, and really made it your own so I'm kind of curious what what is it about this area of work that you know appeals to you or that speaks to you and 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 that really gets you kind of going and 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 interested in it. Well, there is the intellectual uh, curiosity, of course. It's a fascinating field, uh, ethics generally, and then publication ethics, of course, has an application to my, you know, my vocation. Um, so the intellectual, um, it's intellectually stimulating, uh, and just the sheer variety of the cases we're confronted with, uh, you know, and also, but the good that we can do as publishers by engaging uh, 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 energetically with publication ethic. Um, you know, there have been cases, uh, we didn't touch on this, but very quickly, there's, uh, I think I alluded to it, a type of violation called breaches of duty of care, you know, and so let's say, you know, your human research subjects, uh, are you dealing with the um, elderly or with children, vulnerable populations, things like that. So whether, you know, when you think of whether it's from censorship or self-censorship, which is also a violation, um, or you have, uh, people plagiarizing authors or vulnerable populations not being um, worked with in an appropriate manner, um, according to like institutional review boards, things like that. So it's, it's edifying, it's intellectually stimulating, but it's also more importantly, personally and professionally edifying to perform this service for the academic community. So in one in which I and my colleagues take great pride because often our partners are confronted with very complex situations. Some are very simple and above board, straightforward, easily resolved. Some are very complex and sometimes sensitive, even sometimes um, uh, receiving a fair amount of publicity, you know, um, especially with uh, unprovenanced artifacts. There have been a lot of cases that have hit the news uh, about that. So helping them navigate those and coming to the best, most equitable um, conclusion uh, and much in the spirit of COPE and aligning ourselves with their core principles and best practices, you know, we try to... Uh, mirror their mission in our everyday dealings. And so, you know, that's, it. it like I said, it's, it's rewarding to, to know that we're doing our part to ensure the integrity of the scholarly record and uh, to correct it, to preserve it, and thereby to provide a superior service to our publishing partners, um, you know, and to, to allow them to publish with us in such a way that they're confident and able to focus on producing quality scholarship. Brilliant. Jason, um, it's been a pleasure um, speaking with you and learning from you uh, about this area, which I have to admit, um, I, you know, you hear bits and pieces here and there, but um, I, I, I'm not sure that I was aware that there was someone who was, you know, given as much thought in a in sort of a comprehensive and whole and encompassing way um, to these issues, which really, you know, are, are, are kind of, I, I think they're, maybe we take them for granted, um, but they actually, uh, serve as the basis in our belief a- in research. And I think without that, you know, kind of all of science and, and, and the way that the world functions is, 
you know, is put into question and, 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 you know, we saw this over the, over, you know, over the pandemic, um, that there were, you know, the debate over the veracity of science was not something that, you know, kind of was decided as I would have expected, but actually is very much alive and well. And I think that the gatekeepers who make sure that the science is real science um, are the ones that we can kind of rely on and, and, and say, no, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a method to the madness. And, there are people who are making sure that you know that 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 nothing wrong gets in. So kudos to you and thanks to you for all your hard work in that regard. And um, and thank you for taking the time to share and and just you know inform you know me and and our listeners about you know uh, this really fascinating area. My pleasure. I greatly enjoyed it. And for your listeners, if ever there's a question of publication ethics, uh, if they have questions, if uh, they have identified a potential violation, they can always uh, reach out to us at publicationethics at brill.com. And that is a mailbox that I routinely monitor. And we're always happy to provide guidance or, you know, otherwise work with our partners. Brilliant. And do you have any, um, you know, I don't don't know if you're on on any socials, but are there any social, aren't you on LinkedIn that people can can reach out? Indeed, you can find me on LinkedIn, Jason Prevost. Yep. Brilliant. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Avi. You have a great afternoon. You too.